Let us pray. Father God, would you feed us from your word this morning through the power of the Spirit. Bless our appetites, grow us in hunger for a greater knowledge of who you are and what you have done for our sake and for our salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We humans can have a long memory when it comes to a bad meal. The legendary one of my household has now spanned over a decade. My wife is glaring at me. But it's it involves a bad batch of Wendy's Frosties my wife and I got. And she still has not returned to the Wendy's Frosties. She has cast them off. When you have something that just doesn't taste right, Again, the memory's long. It's probably what Joel will have happen with the fig jam that he had last night. But this passage, in many ways, is a passage that most likely came about because the Pharaoh got a bad taste in his mouth. Just because of the principal players of the story, it, it is almost certainly likely that that was the case. And yet, also in this passage, we, we catch up with Joseph once again. And in one sense, we might have a little bit of a bad taste in our mouth. In the, for the second time, in two chapters, somebody has been wrongly accused of a sexual crime that actually their accuser was guilty of. And so we catch up with Joseph's story today in the prison, in the jail, and we look to this verse and this story here this morning. Now, verse 1 of our passage today makes clear that some time has passed. Joseph has actually now been falsely, wrongly placed in prison for quite some time since the events of chapter 39. He's been left in prison for dead, and so we start with Joseph, the interpreter, finding himself uh, now being put in a situation with two men, a bread maker and a cupbearer, charged with displeasing the king of Egypt. The king of Egypt. And verse 1 right away leads to a noteworthy question, because the words it chooses to select right off the bat is interesting because the book of Genesis and the books that follow will have no problem calling Pharaoh, Pharaoh. And so we should ask ourselves, why does Moses, who just battled Pharaoh and the events recorded in the book of Exodus, and what did he battle Pharaoh over? Who was the true Lord over Egypt, which was found to be Yahweh, was the true king and power over Egypt? He, Yahweh proved himself the ultimate king. So why does Moses decide not to use Pharaoh right here at the beginning, but talk about how these two individuals, the cupbearer and the breadmaker, offended the Lord and king of Egypt, and hence found themselves in the midst of Joseph? Save that one for a little bit later. But just note that for now, and maybe that observation will carry a little more weight later on in the sermon. So Moses, so 
It's repeated here twice, the ancient Hebraic version of the exclamation point. These two individuals find themselves in prison, for they have offended the king of Egypt. And as I hinted to earlier, both of these individuals from the food industry of Pharaoh, there seems to be enough there textually to guess that the king of Egypt was made sick to his stomach. And these two individuals likely were the prime suspects for his being made sick. Pharaoh is said to be angry, even angrier than my wife is at Wendy's. So he's pretty angry, folks. He, he probably would have believed this was an assassination attempt. And so the cupbearer, the bread maker, and the interpreter are now linked together through this circumstance. And yet the, in the midst of them being now joined together, the events that closed the prison doors upon them would actually open up for Joseph, ultimately, the great palace. The palace doors to Joseph, the faithful son of Israel, would ultimately be led through these experiences in part to that palace. Where once there was only darkness and despair will come a story of redemption for Joseph. And we learn in verses 3 and 4, Joseph begins to serve these two men and attend to them in prison by arrangement of the captain of the guard. We think of prisons as a place of hardened criminals, and yet Joseph here is still a servant. He is ministering to uh, those in prison. He responds to that call. And sometime later, after a period of time, there is a night that these two individuals become deeply troubled. Where the cup bearer and the bread maker both have a dream. And as Joseph comes in to tend to them in the morning, he already can spot that something's wrong with them. He's asking. They, they are obviously terrified at what they see. And think about that. Here the, these men are in prison, and yet the most concerning thing for them is this dream they had. And while both Joseph had been mocked by his brothers as a dreamer, here he is going to be respected and honored as an interpreter by those in need. Now I want you to think for a moment. Moses, I mean Joseph is going to be willing to help here. But think of the many years we've had since Joseph was 17, just a young boy, a faithful young shepherd boy, a, a dreamer of dreams who was mocked by his brothers cast out for dead for his brothers and eventually sold into slavery by his brothers. Think of the fact that there is no bitterness in Joseph in this moment. His faith is actually shown to be quite incredible, quite amazing, in the fact that he still understands and he still trusts in the fact that his God is a God who can interpret dreams. He still is shown as a man of great faith in this moment. In the Hebrew here, the response of Joseph to their needs and to um, their concerns is immediate. No sooner do they tell him that a dream is troubling them than he is ready to declare in faith, basically, well, don't all interpretations come to God? Please tell then your dreams to me. So we get a glimpse of Joseph's spiritual state at this moment, and his faith remains strong. He's not embittered. No sooner does Joseph hear the, of the problem that he declares, 
My God is big enough to solve that problem. My God is big enough to solve that problem. Here by a worldly standard, Joseph appeared to be one utterly forsaken, utterly rejected by God, that God had just cast off, and yet Joseph's faith is not a shallow faith. We Christians often ignore the fact that much of the idea behind the Word of God is to encourage us to suffer well in faith when circumstances look troubling before us. I mean, just for instance, we worship a God who told Noah, Noah, I will destroy the world in a flood. I will destroy all that you see, but carry on, Noah. And what did Noah do? He carried on in faith. We worship a God who told Abraham and Lot, I will destroy Sodom. And they knew that destruction was coming, and yet, what did they do? They carried on in faith. Even in the books of the prophets, so much of the prophets are, Assyria is going to come to destroy you. Babylon is going to destroy, come to destroy you, Israel. Judah, it is going to come to destroy you. But yet, the Lord will redeem it. And so, carry on in faith. Joseph here in this moment is showing the principle of someone who, in the face of suffering, still carries on in faith, not lashing out towards God, not doubting God, regardless of what the circumstances are. We tend to think God is primarily a God who gives us faith so that we can be happy. And you know what? Faith can and does make us happy and joyful. It's a wonderful thing. That's a byproduct of faith. But you know what faith also should mobilize us to do? More of what Joseph illustrates right here, to be ready in faith, in the midst of suffering, for opportunities to share your faith, share the true God with the world and with others. And that's where Joseph's faith is at this moment. There is such a stability in Joseph's faith here. He had every earthly reason to question Yahweh as a God whom, is he really faithful to explain visions of the future? Because last time, Joseph was busy sharing visions of the future. He was being persecuted by his own brothers, cast off into the pit of death, sold into slavery. And it didn't look outwardly like God was going to make come true what Joseph saw. Yet Joseph displays no bitterness towards his Lord. You know, I have this tool in my home. And about two months ago, I was using it and it trapped my, the skin of my finger. It was literally like ripping the skin from my finger. And I was just in terrible pain. And being in a household with uh, a bunch of young ladies, uh, the, the most amazing thing of the whole experience, I think, was they were more sad than I was. They were more troubled. I think they shed more tears than, you know, I did. They were very concerned as this tool was basically ripping off the skin on my finger. And so what did I do with that tool? Did I throw it away? No, I don't throw tools away. I'm not a madman. But I was very cautious with the tool. I've used it since. I put gloves on and these sorts of things. I definitely don't throw tools away. My wife, I'm still getting over from our move from Vegas to Waxhall. She gave away a 
ton of my tools. I love her, but I still don't like that she did that. I'm very cautious. I just used it the other day on, on my car and very cautious with the tool. I don't want it to hurt me again. I put gloves on. Joseph's none of that. He has none of that caution. He's his immediacy to, to trust in the name of the Lord means that he just has the best of qualities. He understands. He has the wisdom to realize God is not his enemy. God is not the source of his problems. God is not in tr on trial. And God is not one in whom he should doubt. He actually illustrates just a, just a beautiful trust and a faith in verse 8. Oh, you have a problem with understanding? You have a problem with being afraid? You have a problem with being overwhelmed with life? Well, have you taken it to God? Have you taken it to the true God? Because he handles such problems. Tell them to me so I can minister to you. Joseph's so confident in God that he's asserting in faith that God will answer the very dreams and the very questions that they come and bring to him. He's not saying maybe God will answer them. He's saying God will answer them. Joseph is well aware that the true king of Egypt, not Pharaoh, who gets food poisoning, but the Lord his God is more than able and willing to handle such things. I, I, I personally struggle with this. My, my ability to remember nothing is too hard for God to handle. I, just in the back, I was telling Bruce, my back of my back hurts. I need some, like, I, you know, medicine, ibuprofen or something. And he goes, well, here, let me just, and he just prays. And even before the sermon, I forget that God is always a God willing to help, willing to step in. I can't imagine the great many hours of my life, the days of my life I've wasted in worry, wasted in holding on to doubts about what lies ahead, wasted in not bringing concerns to God and faith. And I would likely get, guess that you've had such moments too. Whereas Joseph, he does not miss a beat. Prison hasn't embittered his soul or set it against God. It's made him as confident as ever to what the Lord is capable of. What a blessing it is when we get outside of our own often anxious and doubting thought patterns to just remember, oh yeah, God's capable of handling that. Oh yeah, God's in control. Oh yeah, God has purpose and meaning behind that. And so the cupbearer responds by taking a step of faith and gives Joseph his dream. And the dream is a simple vision of the cupbearer first watching a vine with three branches that buds before his eyes. And as it budded and blossomed, the grapes became ripe. And with Pharaoh's cup already in his hand, he takes the ripe grapes and crushes them into the cup and gives the cup to his master. And you can tell right away the cupbearer has affection for his master that he desires to prepare for his master good grapes for him to drink. And so Joseph begins to explain the dream through Yahweh's, Yahweh's revelation. And what it means is this. In three days, the Pharaoh, will remember with, the Pharaoh will remember with fondness his servant, the cupbearer. He will lift up his head, basically show him honor by recognizing him and restoring him to the master's court. And this is an unbelievable prophecy. 
here now for quite some time. The cupbearer has been forgotten by Pharaoh, the master. And I mean, Pharaoh is a Pharaoh. He could have 10,000 cupbearers if he wanted. But he's going to remember this one? This one in whom he once was offended by, as the text tells us, that was cast out of his presence, that he had anger towards. Why would Pharaoh ever forgive a worthless cupbearer whom so angered him? And so offended him that he cast him out. What kind of king of Egypt would you have to be to show such mercy? To even lift up his head in honor before others. Such an individual. Wouldn't such an act bring shame upon Pharaoh? That Pharaoh would so change the relationship with the cupbearer? I mean, his entire court would have known the previous status of the cupbearer. And yet for him to say, I am no longer angry with this one. I am no longer offended with this one. I no longer want him cast out of my presence. I actually want him honored and respected in my presence. What a remarkable prophecy that three days would bring. Three days would bring. Nothing short of a new heart in regards to Pharaoh and this cupbearer is being promised by Yahweh's interpretation. Such a display of grace, such a display of mercy by one so superior to one who is rightly regarded as an inferior. Nothing short of unbelievable. Yet that is what Yahweh reveals to Joseph, and thus Joseph shares with the cupbearer that he will know such grace and mercy after three days. And Joseph at this moment is aware of what this might be for him. This might be a way out. This might be a fulfillment for his own dreams, his own prophecy that he received from God as the favorite son of Israel. And so he humbly asks, and he does, he humbly pleads that as he knows that this cupbearer is going to be sent out and, and finally have an audience before Pharaoh. Could maybe this cupbearer remember him and help likewise to deliver Joseph from bondage? Here Joseph has just offered the cupbearer the peace of knowing there would be reconciliation with his master, nothing short of a life-giving, life-changing peace. and so. Joseph follows with this simple request, a small mercy. He pleads, only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, so to get me out of this house, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Joseph doesn't demand payment. He just politely asks for a small favor, an act of hesed love, according to the Hebrew, a loving kindness. Just as the cupbearer was unable to understand the dream, Joseph is unable to plead his case before Pharaoh, and so Joseph is asking for a favor in kind. And then the chief baker, 
and seeing the favorable word of comfort the cupbearer received, musters up the courage to share his own dream with Joseph. Likely believing Yahweh will also offer a favorable message to him as well. Now the baker's story, in the baker's dream, he had three baskets of bread on his head of a great many varieties. And yet for the baker's dream, unlike the cup holder whose drink reached Pharaoh, he had the birds of the air swoop down and steal all the bread intended for Pharaoh. The bread set aside for the king of Egypt. It did not reach the king of Egypt. And it's here I quickly want to mention another time in Genesis. There's one other time in Genesis, an interesting moment, where, bread, where birds are said to be swooping down in order to try to take an offering of food for a lord. And it comes to us in Genesis chapter 15. You see, in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 9, the Lord says to Abraham before he institutes the Abrahamic covenant, he's Abram at this time, but he says to Abraham, bring me a heifer, bring me a ram, bring me a goat, I believe, and then a turtle dove and a pigeon. So Abraham goes off, he goes, gets these things of three years, and he goes, gets these things, that number three again, three years, of three years. He goes, gets these things, and he gets them, and he prepares to put them before the Lord, and yet the Lord is not yet uh, ready to do what he will do with the sacrifice to illustrate the fact that through the Abrahamic covenant, he will bear the wounds, he, his body will be torn in two in order to save for himself a remnant from Abraham to make him the father of a great nation, and ultimately later on he will find great many nations. And as the offering is there awaiting for it to be provided to the Lord, birds are trying to swoop down. There's this verse 11 there that's just an awkward verse. Birds are trying to swoop into the Lord's offering, trying to take it for themselves. These heavenly animals, creatures, and he's swatting at them and making sure Abraham is defending the sacrificial offering prepared for the Lord. It's interesting that this is the only other time, but for the baker, the baker does not protect the offering for Pharaoh. The baker just lets the birds have it. The baker wastes the offering for Pharaoh, unlike Abraham. It's interesting. A coincidence worth considering. So the baker, on the other hand, in his dream, is unable to defend that which is his Lord's. And so Joseph tells the baker the meaning behind his dream. The baker, like the cupbearer, will have his fortunes change in a mere three days. And yet while the pharaoh will give the baker also a moment of acknowledgement, a moment of recognition after those three days, the result of the baker being recognized by the king of Egypt will be that the king of Egypt will see him hanged. And the birds of the air, which were often symbols of celestial bodies, will devour the bread maker. The same day, three days required to bring one faithful cupbearer of the king of Egypt to redemption will lead the unfaithful one, the bread maker, 
to having his body utterly broken. We have now reached, in Genesis 40, the three days that change the course of everything. The three days that lead to an entirely different kind of sentence to two different kinds of prisoners. For one, three days leads to grace and mercy. The one faithfully found sharing the fruit of the vine with and for his master. And the other is led to a most wicked death, a hanging that actually resembles the death of Judas in the New Testament. For he came to his Lord with nothing, for the birds of the air had devoured the variety which he once was blessed to have to offer. And then we see from verses 20 to 22, the prophecy unfolds just as Yahweh revealed it would. And the cupbearer, the one whom now knows grace and mercy, whom in one sense should feel a sense of indebtedness to Joseph, he has totally ignored and forgotten his brother whom helped him in his fear. Yet Yahweh still hasn't let Joseph down. Actually, the events of this moment with the illustration of what Joseph's faith was like would have been a great encouragement, a confirmation that Joseph did understand his earlier dream he had back when he was a young, faithful shepherd boy at 17, that he one day, one day his dream would come true and Yahweh would fulfill and make good, just as he had seen in the two dreams in its midst. In the matter of three days, Joseph received the confirmation he needed that God was not against him, but rather God was for him. We do well, brothers and sisters in the faith, to remember the three days that confirm for us likewise. Our God is not against us, but is rather for us. There is a set of three days for you and I as well that changes everything. It changes everything for everyone who has ever lived or ever will live. The whole world, in one sense, revolves around the fate of the three days I am referring to. But I'm no longer referring to the three days highlighted in Genesis chapter 40, but the three days which show the passionate love of our Lord Jesus Christ when he became an offering of sin for us and for our sake so that we might become free to the bondage of sin. For our God was sickened by our sin, for our sins were so vile before him, and he had the right to cast us out from his presence. But again, those three days, those three days, they changed everything. Our Lord allowed himself to be humbled, embracing a pit of death, allowing himself to walk a narrow path only he could righteously walk. For those whom have received the mercy of those three days, the day, what they have to offer, they have been set free. And yet those three days have also changed everything for another group as well. Some will be led into ultimate judgment, separated from their master, because they refused to safeguard that which is the master's. You know, just late last night, honestly, as I was finishing the sermon, my sister is connected to an individual, and she sent me a link. To, I'm not on Instagram, or I am, but I'm not, like, on Instagram. 
to her friend on Instagram, somebody that she knows. And it was a picture of the front of the church. And in front of the church had been spray painted, My Body, My Choice, and anarchist symbols and other godless symbols, other forms of graffiti. And the parishioner of that church wrote the following response, and I believe he well articulated the principle that the three days of his master does change everything. That it cuts two ways. It cuts some to the quick with gracious love and mercy, and it cuts some others down in what will be ultimate judgment because they refuse to be changed by the master. Let me read some of this parishioner's response to seeing his church graffitied. He says, you know what? Their anger is rightly placed. We are, in fact, to blame for this. If Jesus hadn't come and the Roman emperor still ran the world, abortion and infanticide would still be totally normal and far worse. They say coexist, but they know full well that when push comes to shove, a society built on principles of human dignity and worship of God cannot coexist with society built on worship of sexual liberation. And they hate you for it. And they're calling you out for it. And what do we do from here? What do we do from here? Be kind. Love your enemies. When they shout, tell them Jesus died for you. What they do doesn't change who I am. But also don't think your silence is helping you or making you appear more welcoming. Speak truth loudly and draw boundaries. While he continued on, the reality is this. There were three days that changed everything for humanity before the king of Egypt, before the king of Israel, before the king of heaven, and before the king of earth. Where do those three days cut for you? Are you someone like the cupbearer who has extended grace and mercy by God and yet no sooner do you receive it than you forget it? You just want salvation without remembering those whom are still locked away in the prisons of life. What might it cost you to remember them? Or are you someone like the bread maker whom intends to waste the bounty of his life before the eyes of his master and ultimately is cut down because of it in judgment? For you do not strive to protect the good gifts the master has blessed you with? Or are you the faithful servant who is not embittered towards God, no matter the situation or the circumstances you find yourself in, because you know of the three days, those three precious days that changed your fate and mine before the Lord of this world and the world to come. What did the three days mean for you? And how will the Lord acknowledge you before the, the presence of a cloud of great many witnesses in the festival of that gathering that is to come? May it be as a servant whom tended the fields of his harvest. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, oh, what it cost 
you to give us the three days of your son's sacrifice. Oh, what it cost you to allow your son to be cut down into death, to have his body torn apart for our sake, to sacrifice his body as our living bread. Help us to not go from this place forgetful of what it cost you, but help us to be moved by the power of your spirit. As the ire and anger of the world amplifies, Lord, help us more boldly love. Help us more boldly seek peace. Help us more boldly declare your truth in the midst of the dark places and pits of life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.